We're going to go old school. I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles and to actually read the scriptures off the pages in front of you as we uh, wait for the projector to, to come back online. Uh, if the projector doesn't come back online tonight, um, the good news is that my sermon doesn't have any points, so you don't have to worry about missing uh, the points, um, so we'll be okay. For the last couple of months, we've been looking at the life of David in the morning, and we've been looking at the life of Joseph in the evening. Uh, and all along the way, in, in both of those uh, sermon series, we've been showing how both David, uh, sometimes positively and more often negatively, uh, points us to Jesus. We've seen how Joseph uh, mostly positively points us to Jesus. And so tonight we're going to be starting uh, a new series, a new biographical series in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust that it will be a great uh, blessing and help and encouragement to you as Christians in your own walk with the Lord, uh, but also as you may encourage and bring others along who are perhaps interested to know more uh, that this series will be used by the Lord uh, to drive those individuals to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read together Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, whose strap, uh, the, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased." The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Just so far in the reading of God's word, let's just come to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have the wonderful joy this evening of starting the series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, to come and spend our evenings for the next three or four Sunday uh, months over the next um, Sunday evenings to focus on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, to learn more about just exactly who he is and what he has come to do for us in this world. Lord, we want to pray up front that this series will be a great encouragement and blessing to those who are your children here, 
at Honey Ridge, those who love you and who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Lord, we pray that those who are perhaps seeking or on the fringe or who have fallen away from the Lord Jesus Christ would come to see him so clearly that your Holy Spirit would shine the light of the gospel into their hearts and minds, would lift the veil of darkness and would draw them to yourself. Lord, we pray that you would make us as a church an evangelizing church. You have entrusted to us the work of being your ambassadors here on earth and Lord, we know that many will will never encounter a a preacher or an evangelist these days, but they encounter us every day in our workplaces, in our complexes, in our suburbs. And so we, we pray that you would give us a heart for the lost, that we would be those who pray for loved ones and friends and family members to have an opportunity. And Lord, as we are able to invite them to these services, particularly in this evening series, that you would be pleased Uh, to draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself. Lord, help us to be faithful, and we entrust to you the work of salvation. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I've said, we start this new series in the Gospel of Mark tonight. It looks like we're back online. Thanks, uh, Graham. Uh, This is a book which uh, some scholars propose was the earliest of all the New Testament books written around AD 45, Uh, But most scholars would uh, put forward that this is certainly the earliest of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Mark is certainly the earliest of the four Gospels. And the consensus seems to be that Mark's Gospel was most likely written in Rome uh, around AD 65, particularly with a Gentile audience in mind, an audience perhaps very much like ours living in Johannesburg in 2023. Now, if I was to wake you up in the middle of the night uh, and to ask you to quickly give me the names of four of Jesus' disciples, I'm sure many would immediately respond, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you'd go back to sleep, not giving it another thought. Well, if that was a test, uh, you would only get 50%, because Mark and Luke were not part of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Luke was a doctor. Uh, And he was a close companion of the Apostle Paul, and it's believed that Luke wrote his gospel account under the direction of, or at least with the the support of, the Apostle Paul. Mark, who is also known in the book of Acts as John Mark, is believed from various uh, references in the New Testament and also from some of the early church fathers to have been a close ministry friend of the Apostle Peter. And he acted Uh, as Peter's interpreter, that he spent many years with Peter as Peter went around preaching the good news about Jesus. And so Mark was not only a close friend and, and ministry servant with Peter, but would have heard all the stories that Peter told as he preached about Jesus. And so if the date of, of around AD 65 is correct, uh, then Mark's gospel would have been written Uh, from Rome at the same time as Peter's first imprisonment in Rome during that period of extreme persecution that began under the emperor Nero. So although Mark was not an apostle, um, there is significant evidence which supports the fact that his gospel account as we have it was written under the direction of and really based on the eyewitness accounts and the preaching of the apostle Peter. 
One commentator says, Peter comes across to us when we read the gospel narratives as a vigorous, impetuous character. No doubt his accounts of events in the life of Jesus would be very dramatic, very graphic. And many of the stories in Mark are dramatically told as we will see. Now, if, if you were in the position of Mark, if, if you had been alive at the time of Jesus, you'd not only been a close friend and acquaintance with Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, but you had, it seems, even witnessed some of Jesus' ministry for yourself. And you were asked by Peter to write an account of the life and the ministry of Jesus for the purpose of explaining who he was and what he came to do on this earth. And you were asked to, to write this account for, for the mostly pagan Gentile population of Italy, uh, but specifically for those who lived in the capital city of the Roman Empire at the time of the most cruel and violent persecution against Christians. A time which was very hostile towards Christians. How would you have gone about this great task. Well, unlike Matthew, Mark does not start with a long genealogy showing that Jesus' ancestry can be traced all the way back through David to Abraham. Unlike Luke, Mark does not go back to the time of Jesus' divine conception or the account of his birth in Bethlehem as the angels appeared to the shepherds to announce his arrival. Unlike John, Mark does not go back to the creation of the world to explain that Jesus was there before the dawn of time and that he was the one who created the world. No, for Mark, and it's not that all of these other details are unimportant, for they certainly are, but for Mark, and maybe this is already the evidence of Peter's impatient influence. Come on, Mark, get to Jesus. He starts the, the writing of this gospel with Ready, set, Jesus. Verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You won't find a more gripping start to any story in all the world than verse one. What you hold in your hands, what you are about to read and what we are going to study over the next couple months is the beginning of the gospel. It's the beginning of the good news of a man by the name of Jesus, who is also the Christ. Christ was not his surname. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Old Testament Messiah to whom all the Old Testament prophets had pointed. And he is also the Son of God. Now, these are very bold claims, especially, again, considering the audience, the audience who lived in Rome in a culture where the emperor, Nero, he was a god to the people with a small g. And so to, to claim any allegiance to another ruler was literally to sign your own death warrant. But to proclaim good news of a man who is not only God's anointed savior, but is himself the very son of God with a capital G, well, what follows is certainly going to be filled with action. 
And so ready, set, Jesus is the mindset uh, of Mark as he writes this gospel. Now in those days, before a king or an emperor arrived in a city or there was a national gathering, his arrival would be announced by a herald, someone who would go ahead of the king to draw in the crowds and to get them ready for the, the dignitary's imminent arrival. Now by this time, the prophets of the Old Testament had been silent for the past 400 years, but their line was not yet dead. For there was still one more prophet, one more Old Testament prophet to come who would be the herald of the Messiah, who would announce his coming. And so Mark wants his readers to see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he too had to have a herald. He had to have someone who would announce his coming. And so he tells us, this is what the prophets have written. Verse two, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now what is very interesting uh, in this verse, verses two and three, is that Mark joins two quotations from the Old Testament which speak about the herald who will announce the coming of the Messiah. The first part of his quotation is from Malachi chapter three, which actually says that when this messenger announces the coming of the Lord, you need to be prepared for judgment. Let's take a look at that together. Behold, I send my messenger, Malachi 3 verse one, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, says God. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages and the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So the first part of Mark's quotation was linked to the coming of God to purify and refine his people and to bring judgment against all the wicked, against all those who do not fear the Lord of hosts. Now the second reference which he quotes from is Isaiah chapter 40. Now this is a wonderful messianic prophecy of comfort and grace and mercy towards God's people. Let's see Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, and here's John's quote, Mark's quote. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What a way to set the scene for the biography of Jesus. A man who is the anointed Messiah of God He is the God-man who is the very son of the most holy God, the, the God who dwells in unapproachable light and who cannot look on sin, who cannot let wickedness go unpunished. A man who we are told his name is Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. Now talk about sending out mixed signals. Is this Messiah that is coming, is he coming to bring judgment or salvation? Will he bring justice or forgiveness? Will he bring wrath or mercy? Well, let's read on. Where is this herald of the Messiah? Who is he? How will we know that it is him? Well, 400 years earlier, the last words of the Old Testament close with God announcing that he would send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day Of the Lord comes. That's Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. And so Mark continues in verse 4, and he says, immediately following these prophecies of the herald who will come, he says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, I don't know if there is anyone else in the New Testament described by what he wore, certainly not by what he ate. Why tell us that John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist? Well, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, you will find that Elijah wore the skin of an animal with a leather belt around his waist. This is a clear reference. Mark doesn't waste any words. He gets straight to the point that John the Baptist is the long-awaited prophet Elijah. He's the last in the line of Old Testament prophets, the one who would announce the coming of the Messiah, whose message would be both a message of judgment and grace, of both repentance and salvation. We read in in Malachi 3 that when the Lord appears, who can stand? He comes as a refiner's fire to bring judgment on all wickedness. He will deal swiftly to destroy all who do not fear God. And so we see that John's message of heralding the coming of the Messiah King was firstly a message of imminent judgment. How do we know that? Well, it resulted in large crowds of people in Judea and all Jerusalem flocking out into the wilderness to do what? to confess their sins and to be baptized with a baptism of repentance. But his message was not just a message of judgment. It was also a message of comfort, a message of salvation. I mean, this is after all, verse one, 
This is the good news of Jesus Christ, not the, the bad news. And so as anticipated by the quotation from Isaiah 40, we have the arrival of God's anointed servant, which brings great comfort. Comfort for those who turn to him, who repent, who, who seek his forgiveness and salvation. So along with this message of judgment and repentance, here we see that John goes on to proclaim a message of salvation and hope. Look at verse seven. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, Baptism at, at this time was not what we understand as Christians today for baptism. Uh, it was understood in the context of the religious system of ceremonial washings. And so John's baptism of repentance was administered to those who confessed their sins that were committed under the law. Those who repented of their sins, those who turned their back, that's what repentance means, to turn your, your back on your rebellion against God and, and your breaking of his laws. And they were baptized as a sign that they needed to be washed, that they needed to be cleansed from their guilt before a holy God. Hopefully you were here last weekend and you will recall, uh, as Pastor Charles preached from Hebrews, that these various priestly washings and sacrifices were but shadows. They were symbols of a greater reality. The symbols which never in and of themselves could purify the conscience of the worshiper. They could never remove the guilt and the defilement of a person's heart. They were ineffective to accomplish true forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And so here we see that John the Baptist the very last of these old covenant prophets, he heralds a message of a better covenant. He heralds the message of a better priest. He heralds the message of a better sacrifice. He heralds the message of a better salvation. How? By announcing the arrival of an altogether better savior. Look at verse seven again. After me, John says, comes he who is so far superior to me that I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. That was the most menial task given to the lowest of slaves. John says, he is so great. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I've baptized you with water I've washed your body externally with water, but when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will wash you from the inside out. He will cleanse your conscience. He will remove your guilt with the pure water of the Holy Spirit. And we need to remember who is speaking here. This is John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said in Matthew 11, truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. According to Jesus, John the Baptist is the greatest human being that has ever lived apart from Jesus. And John says, the one who comes after me is so much superior to me 
that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. So who then is this altogether superior savior? Well, again, true to Mark's pace of action, he doesn't leave us to wonder who this person is that John is talking about. The one whom the prophet said would would come to bring both judgment and salvation. Mark jumps straight in, verse nine, and he tells us, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Ready, set, Jesus. Now, this is the first public act of Jesus, and it may seem rather confusing at first glance because back in verse four and five, we are told that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a a baptism for those who came to him confessing their sins. But Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is perfectly sinless. He has nothing to repent of. So why would he be baptized? Well, the answer is actually quite clear if we go back to those quotations from Malachi and Isaiah quoted in verse two and three. You see, the arrival of Jesus, according to those quotations from the Old Testament, signaled two things which seem diametrically opposed, judgment and salvation. The judgment of God against all that is sinful and at the same time, the forgiveness and the salvation of all who repent. So with these two opposing ideas in tension, what exactly should we be looking for in the Messiah? Well, John tells us that Jesus came from Nazareth and his first public act as this anointed Messiah of God was to stand in a long queue of sinners to identify with them in their sin, in their need for salvation by entering into the baptism of repentance. This is the very first act of Jesus identifying himself with us, with sinners, as the one who would ultimately become our substitute in his death on the cross. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The ultimate act of substitutionary atonement on the cross of Calvary, it began when Jesus was born 30 years earlier. It began as he took on our humanity, as he entered into our world. And here it was now publicly displayed in his baptism as he identifies with all those who would ultimately look to him for true cleansing, for true salvation. Listen to Steve Wormshurst. He says, whether they understand it fully or not, the crowds are there with John to acknowledge that they have done wrong and that they are under God's judgment. Jesus joins them, not because he has sins to confess, but because he wants to identify with them. That is his mission. 
He is here to place himself deliberately under the judgment and the condemnation of God. The sinless one standing with the sinners. He is going through the water with the sinners. As Isaiah put it long ago, he is here to be numbered with the transgressors. He carries on all of this points ahead to the day when Jesus will take the judgment on himself even though he deserves none of it. When the one who has come from Nazareth will take the place of the many by suffering God's punishment on the cross and crucified between two criminals, he will again be numbered with the transgressors. Ahead of him, And behind him in that line stand men and women with the guilt of their own sins hanging around their necks, sins that fully deserve God's condemnation. Only he stands there as the one who can take that condemnation, that judgment on himself in their place, can forgive their sins and bring them freely to God. So he takes his turn and is immersed in the water that symbolizes sins being washed away, blazing the trail for us, opening up the pathway for men and women to come back to God. Now, just in case you are maybe still a little confused about the purpose of Jesus being baptized and wondering what it all means, Mark doesn't want us to linger with doubts, and and so he immediately goes on to tell us in verse 10, And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. I just want us to pause and think about the significance of this moment and what it means for our salvation. Think about this, Jesus was the perfect son of God who took on flesh as he was born as a baby in a stable in Bethlehem. And although we we read that the hosts of angels in the skies above Bethlehem sang of his birth, glory to God in the highest, nevertheless, God was silent. Jesus was the perfect son of God who lived a perfectly obedient life as a son to Mary and Joseph. He obeyed the law of God perfectly and all that it required of him. And yet throughout all of his years of boyhood and then teenage years and and then early manhood, all of his years of perfect obedience, perfect righteousness, God was silent. What Mark reveals to us here is that when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, after having identified himself with all of those sinners who went out to the Jordan to confess their sins, in that moment in which Jesus identified himself with sinners as the one who would ultimately take all of their sin upon himself, it's at this moment The heavens are torn open, the Holy Spirit descends, and God breaks the silence of 400 years. And he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
even this description of heaven being torn open. What a wonderful description of, of what is going to take place on the cross. Charles reminded us last weekend, up to this point in the whole history of the world, God had been removed from the presence of sinners because he is a holy and just God. He dwells in unapproachable light. We have no access to God. But just as that thick veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom as Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. So here in his baptism, we get a glimpse of that as Jesus identifies himself as the one who will take upon himself the sins of the world, we have heaven torn open. The Spirit of God descends. And the Father, God the Father says, I love you, my son. With you, I am very pleased. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah speaks of this moment in the words of God himself. And I didn't know that Shane was gonna read it this morning, but I'm gonna read it again. Isaiah 42, behold my servant. This is God speaking, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. With him I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or made it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint as David did this morning or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Ready, set, Jesus. Well, Mark is almost ready to, to start telling us about the ministry of Jesus and, and why all of this is good news, but he does not forget who he is writing to, and neither should we. He is writing to Gentiles in Rome. He's writing to tell them why Jesus is the king that they should follow. Why Jesus is the one whom they should submit and entrust their entire lives to and not Nero. In the face of great danger and persecution, Mark wants them to know that Jesus is not just some religious teacher who's willing to identify with us by being baptized in the River Jordan. No, he is indeed willing to undergo everything we face even ultimately to die on a cross in our place. And so no sooner has Jesus been uniquely identified by God as his beloved son and empowered by the Holy Spirit for his ministry which lies ahead, that his real identification with you and me as sinners begins. Remember what the writer to the Hebrews says. Hebrews 4 verse 15 we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Mark wants us to see exactly what this means. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. 
What a comfort to know, right up front in Mark's gospel, that our Messiah, that our Savior is not some ivory tower religious guy who sits cross-legged in a temple offering us a way to a higher plane. No, he was compelled by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He was exposed to the full force of Satan's attacks for 40 days and 40 nights. And not only did he face the relentless temptation of Satan for this entire time, but he was exposed to all the weaknesses of our humanity. Hunger, thirst, cold, discomfort, isolation, lack of sleep, and even, Mark says, wild animals. This detail of wild animals is unique in Mark's gospel, most likely because, again, of whom he was writing to, the people in Rome. You see, under the the viciously cruel reign of Nero, the soldiers would wait for Christians to literally come up out of the waters of baptism after professing faith in Jesus Christ, and they would be arrested and taken to the Colosseum and thrown into an arena of wild animals to be torn to pieces as entertainment for the masses. Mark's good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, reminds his readers that no matter what Satan or Nero or whoever comes after him will throw at you, Jesus has gone through it all before you. He's not some removed deity who makes unreasonable religious demands on your life. He is indeed the one who has been tempted, who has been tested in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And so the good news is this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted or tested as we are yet without sin. So what does that mean? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But you may notice the end of verse 13, and you may say to me, hang on, Clinton, but Jesus had the angels ministering to him. That's not fair. I don't have that. Well, let me remind you from Hebrews 1 verse 14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, while that is very encouraging, The whole point of Hebrews chapter one is that Jesus is better than the angels. And so irrespective of the role which God may assign to the angels to serve us in this life, we have something better. We have Jesus. He is our forerunner, he is our trailblazer, and so no matter what the trial, no matter what the test, no matter what the temptation, We can run with perseverance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, not to the angels, to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Well, Mark has taken us on a a nonstop whirlwind ride in just 13 verses to introduce us to the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
good news that he is the promised Messiah foretold of in the Old Testament. He is the anointed one of God who will save his people from their sins. The good news that he is the one who identifies with us as sinners in order to take our sins upon himself. The good news that he is the beloved son of God with whom God is fully pleased. And so that means that through him, we have access into the very presence of God. Good news that he has faced Satan and won. And the good news that he has endured every temptation and every trial that we will ever face, and he has overcome. Ready, set, Jesus. He is the start, he is the race, he is the finish, and he is the prize. Do you know this Jesus? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening and we are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful that before the foundations of the earth, you chose to send Jesus to be our Savior. What a privilege it is for us to live on this side of the cross. What a privilege it is for us to have this gospel account of the life, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ written for us so that we might know him, repent of our sins to him, receive his salvation in order to love him and serve him and glorify him with all of our lives. Lord, oh, the lengths that you have gone to to save us. Won't you take hold of our hearts again this evening afresh, perhaps if we have grown cold towards Jesus. Perhaps we've been caught up in the formalities and the traditions of religion. Won't you set us free from those things and cause us truly to behold our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as never before, even perhaps for some tonight for the very first time. We pray that you would do this work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.